Welcome to the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for readers and writers of gay romance fiction. If you can read it, write it, watch it, or listen to it, these two guys are going to talk about it. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Adams and Will Knauss. Welcome to episode 16 of Jeff and Will's Big Gay Fiction Podcast. I'm Jeff. And I'm Will. And here we are. It's our sweet 16 episode, yes, for indeed. which we have no party planned, but there you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to list our, wish our listeners well, who were on the East Coast this weekend as Winter Storm Jonas came through and dropped way too much snow on everybody from Virginia all the way up through at least New York. Um, needless to say, I think we're glad we weren't there, because that was way too much snow. Yeah. Um, as we get started this week, I uh, want to give a shout out to the musical Rent on uh, January 25th. 1996, it opened at New York Theatre Workshop Off-Broadway and kicked off what was a phenomenal year for that show. Uh, It is by far my most favorite musical. I think I've seen it at least a dozen or more times uh, between Broadway and tours and Off-Broadway and probably more. Anywhere else I could catch it. Yeah, probably. Um, So happy anniversary to Rent. Uh, Linking up in the show notes to their... 1997 Tony Awards performance, which I watched a little bit of just before we started recording. They actually did that in the Majestic Theater on the Phantom of the Opera stage. Because it was way before the Tonys moved to Radio City and to non-Broadway venues. Yeah, uh, yeah so that was kind of interesting okay. to okay. see. Yeah. Um, so that's there. You'll see Jesse Martin in his pre-Law and Order and Flash days. And Idita Menzel pre-Frozen and pre-Wicked. Uh, it's pretty. It's pretty awesome to catch up on. So yeah, happy birthday to Rent. Happy birthday to them. This week uh, here in the states, BBC America started running a uh, television series called London Spy, and Jeff and I watched the first episode yesterday. Yeah, and it was intriguing. Intriguing is a good word for it. Intriguing. Um, ben Whitshaw, I believe, is how you say his last name. He is the. Um, Kind of hot geek who's currently playing Q in the James Bond movies. And he's done a bunch of other things as well. Uh, and he's really awesome. We actually saw him on stage in New York once. Mm-hmm. And the name of the play is Escaping Me. Me too. But <laughs> he's about to do The Crucible we sh- Oh Broadway. yeah, he is about to do The Crucible on Broadway. Which yeah. we are uh, going to try try to see when we make our spring trip. Anyway, yeah. I'm, I'm getting off, off topic. Um, anyway, so we watched uh, London Spy. And uh, it's about... Um, ben Whitshaw's character, who's kind of a kind of a, a lovable screw up. He's he's kind of a messed up guy trying to get his life back on track, and he meets a mysterious guy, and he falls really hard for him, and they have some fun, and then the mysterious guy disappears, mm-hmm. and uh, we don't really learn. This extent, well, this is only the first episode, so they're not, you know, spilling all the secrets just yet. But there was some weird, mysterious, messed up stuff going on with Mystery Man. And yeah. It's really, really interesting. If you're here in the States, check it out. I believe it airs every Monday night on BBC America. And if you're, um, of course, in uh, the UK, you've probably... Watch the entire series, and you might be on the series too by now. You, you already know what all the mystery is about, so who knows? I don't know. Anyway, uh, it's really interesting. Kind of the uh, it, it is dark. It's dark. The thing, the thing I couldn't figure out how to explain to you yesterday when we were talking about it, and I still won't explain it well. Yeah, is that the show 
seemed and felt really slow and really deliberate in its rollout, which was awesome because it kind of it fit the show well. But what was odd about it was as you're watching the time go by on the DVR, like every time Will would zip past the commercials, I'm like, it's 30 minutes are gone already? Mm-hmm. Oh, now it's over. I think the It word, was a really fast slow. I think the word you're looking for is methodical. Oh, yeah. And okay. I think it's sort of rolling out the story and the clues and the mystery in a very methodical and, and well, frankly, British kind of a way. Um, I don't think this kind of pacing would fly on any U.S. show. Um yeah, yeah, definitely not. Maybe maybe on cable, maybe, maybe. But not a network show, for sure. Anyway, so uh, check out London Spy. We really, really liked it, and we're going to uh, keep watching to see what happens. Yeah. So, to cute, cute Ben. We love you, Ben. Cute Ben. And, and Jim Broadbent, too, who's always <laughs> and, a treat. Yes. Yes. And, um... Yeah. <sighs> we, just, we just saw her interview on CBS Sunday Morning. Um, oh, the Oscar lady. The, the Oscar, the, the Oscar lady. lady. Um, I can't think of her name. I'm she's in the movie. Completely blanking now. I can't even come up with the movie. Anyway, she's in, she's in it too. Um, she's coming up in a future episode. Um, yeah, well, we'll mention her when we get her name together. Oh, wow, Sorry we're so that. prepared. Anyway, let's move on. Moving we're, on. We're, we sound so stupid right now. <laughs> anyway, uh, we want to thank the Satyrsphere podcast for our p- a pimp out this week. Uh, Captain Scott and Cindy uh, and Scott, uh, I met, I, I hooked up with his podcast because he was is a fan of the Hattrick books and has reviewed them on his show. Uh, they're on episode two hundred one, which tells you how long they've been going now. Uh, they have pop culture, uh, TV, movies. Uh, they talk about theater. They do a mystery musical every week, and I have to say, episode two hundred one threw me. I have no clue what that is. Uh, and also a healthy dose of hockey, because Scott is a San Jose Sharks fan. So thank you, Satisphere, for the shout-out. And we give you one back, because our, our audience should definitely be checking you out as well. Indeed. Let's move on to the question of the week, shall we? Absolutely. Um, this last week's question, we asked, what's your favorite romance trope and why? Here are a few answers we received. Anya mentioned that... M- <laughs> Enemies, that's the word. Enemies to lovers and friends to lovers are my two mushy, guilty pleasures. There's something alluring and cute about people experiencing an epiphany on why they've had such strong emotions towards someone, but not really recognizing it for what it is. I live for that journey of clarity, self-awareness, and discovery. Thank you, Anya. Devin started out with, love athletes, duh. Yes, this is not surprising. This Devin is Devin Rhodes, who is co-author of the International Men of Sports series. So, of course, she loves athletes. Mm-hmm. Very much so. But then she went on to say that a uh, big one for me is lifelong friends who become more as adults. Or young first loves who separate and then come back together later in life. Thanks for that one, Devin. Um, Tal mentioned that gay for you is my favorite. It gets me all the time. You can see all the responses we got to the question of the week on the show notes for this episode. And we are happy to move on to our interview episode, interview segment now. Uh, we have new author Jordan Nasser with us uh, this episode. He We talked a little bit last week about his books, Home is a Fire and The Fire Went Wild, uh, which we've both read and both quite enjoyed. Uh, they were They were good books. Um, so let's get to the interview with Jordan now. 
Welcome, Jordan Nasser, to the podcast. Um, you're a debut author, getting two books out in 2015 uh, with Home is a Fire and then The Fire Went Wild. And Centrally Gay Romance book review blog actually named you as one of their debut authors of 2015, which I guess was a great way to end your year. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It was a great honor. I was really, really happy with that. I, I think it's really hard as a debut author to get noticed, and I think that's one of the challenges I faced is sort of navigating these waters of figuring out how to do the other side of the writing, which I, I don't know how to do, which is the self-promotion. Right. It's always a challenge, I think, uh, for any author, really, because we just all want to write books. Exactly. Uh, I would like someone else to do the hard work. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so since you are new, um, introduce yourself to our listeners who, who may not have found your books yet. Sure. Uh, my name is Jordan Nasser, and uh, I'm an American living in Stockholm, Sweden, actually. I was uh, raised in Tennessee in the South, and then I lived for 13 years in New York. And in New York, I started working for a company called H&M, which was a clothing company. And I started doing advertising and was eventually asked to move over to uh, a job in Sweden, which I took seven years ago. Uh, I moved to Sweden in 2008 and worked with H&M for an additional six years. And then about a year and a half ago, I decided I wasn't having any fun anymore. I wanted to take a little break, do something different, try a new challenge. And I um, decided to take a year off. And about three months into you know, lying on a beach in, in France and just getting a tan, I thought to myself, you know, I, I don't wanna walk away from this one year experience and not have something to show for it other than great experiences or, you know, the aforementioned TAM. And I had always worked with digital things, digital advertising and marketing and social media and video and everything I did, I realized after I left my work was nothing I could physically take with me. It was nothing I could hold. So I decided that I wanted to uh, create something that I could hold in my hand and I, I love reading and I love books and I, you know, everyone says they have a book inside of them. So I sat down with a laptop and I just started writing and that's pretty much it. That's awesome. And you make it sound so easy too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm really one of those people that, that doesn't do a lot of research into the how or why to do something. I'm, I'm literally a cliff jumper. I, I run off the cliff and I expect there to be water below me. So I'll try just about anything once and I'll see how I do it. And if I fail, I fail miserably and spectacularly and it's fun. But the, the cool sort of side product of this was that I, I wrote what I thought to be a really fun first book. And once I finished it, I knew there was another one. So I just continued writing. But I was so nervous by how the first book would be received that I actually finished the first draft of the second book before I even released the first book because I wanted to be certain that I was doing it for me and not based on what other people thought of it. So I thought if the reviews were terrible for the first book, then I never would have written the second book. But now, hey, I already got it out of the way. So I did. And, and they say, too, that it's if you know you're doing a series, it's always good to have the second book kind of ready if the first one hits. Because then and, you can just follow it right up fairly quickly. And you had the second book out, if I remember right, within about six months or less? 
exactly. It was about seven months after the first book came out. So the two books have now been out uh, in just about a year and a half's time. I know there's a lot of writers, and I'm in this camp, who would, who would love to leave the day job behind. What was it like for you to kind of make this leap from, you know, all these years at H&M to I'm a writer now? It's, it's actually terrifying and freeing all at once. I think the first three months, uh, I sort of felt sort of figuratively drunk, a little high on life, and everything just seemed new and exciting. I was, I was having a hard time waking up. I was, wasn't really sure what my motivation was. I wanted to do everything and nothing, and I had no focus. And uh, the original plan was just to take off about three months and then jump right into another job. But I realized that, that when I started looking for another job, I wasn't ready yet. I'd been working nonstop since I was 18. I was 45 when I left. I wanted a vacation. So thankfully and, and luckily, you know, I'm, I'm now living in Sweden and we have a sort of different safety net to take care of someone if they're without a job and we have health care and, and all of that. So it was something I didn't have to worry about. So that was much easier on me. But um, it's really an amazing, absolutely exhilarating experience. And I've I've been asked before if I'd like to write a book about taking a year off on your life, for your life, and then experiencing all of the fears and trials and tribulations that come with that. So that's sort of a little idea off in the distance. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about these two books. What, were, what was your inspiration for these books? I, I have an idea that growing up in the South certainly played into them. Absolutely. I, uh, my parents were, were born and raised in California, and so we moved around a lot when I was a kid. Um, my dad worked in, in a, he worked in computer software before anyone did. So he would go into a place and work there for a year, a year and a half, and then leave and move on to another project. So by the time I was in fourth grade, I'd lived in 10 different places. So I, um, I had a hard time making friends. We moved from upstate New York to Tennessee. I didn't have a Southern accent. I was a Yankee. I mean, the whole cultural diversity thing was completely foreign to me. It was very, very strange. And I thought to myself, you know, hey, it'll pass. I'll, I'll move on in, uh, in a few years. And then, of course, the, the joke upon jokes is that my parents ended up getting divorced and we ended up staying there. So I really ended up being a transplant to the South. And then I moved away from the South to New York City, where I lived for 13 years. And it was last summer, just over a year, year and a half ago, I had this time off for work and I, I decided to go home for a few weeks. And I think going home for a longer period where it wasn't just a few days to visit friends and family, I was fully immersed in biscuits and gravy and Dolly Parton and Southern twang and my old high school and people I'd known since I was 10 and everyone had different lives now and we were all older and more mature. And it sort of struck me that, that the person who I was when I left certainly wasn't the person who I was when I returned just for that trip. And I started going through all these series of, of sort of stories in my head of what it's like to move away and to come back and sort of be a different person, but be with those friends you've always known. And that's when I, I started writing the book. So what did the folks back home think of it? You know, I was I was really afraid actually. Uh, maybe not afraid is not the right word, but I was hesitant. 
You know, I'm, I, I wrote a romantic comedy that featured two male leads. And part of my goal with, with the book and the, the follow-up was that I wanted to write a book that my parents would be able to read that they wouldn't be ashamed or embarrassed of. And in that sort of genre of, of fiction or gay fiction, I just wanted to write fiction. To me, the book is just a romantic comedy that happens to feature two men. And that was part of my goal. I didn't want to write a book that had very heavy sex scenes. And, you know, if you're looking for that, it, it's not going to be in my book. I write more of a soft romantic comedy that has occasional moments of quirky characters and weird moments in life that just pop up. And the reception from my conservative friends, actually, has been really, really great. And they've all enjoyed the story. And, of course, a lot of them recognize moments of themselves or parts of our hometown and and things that happened to us while we were growing up they see that in the book so it's kind of fun did i read somewhere that you did a a reading or a signing while you were down there over the holidays i did it was quite amazing actually a friend of mine her name is karen adams she uh sent me an email she actually helps me to edit my writing she sent me an email and said you know when you're coming home are, are you planning on doing a book signing and Again, just to, to say, I, I don't know the first thing about marketing myself, which is amazing. I can market a fashion brand and talk about someone else to the end of time, but I'm having the hardest time trying to figure out what to do for myself in terms of, of getting the word out. So Karen said, well, why don't you do a book signing? There's a great local bookstore downtown called Union Avenue Books, and um, they love local authors, and we'll set it up. So I, I did it, and then we, we promoted it, and then... Uh, the newspaper wrote about it. I had a feature story in the newspaper that you know, local hometown boy writes, novel, comes home, book signing, that whole kind of thing. And um, I didn't really think anyone would show up other than you know, people I went to high school with and friends and family. And we had about 40 people there, I guess. It's quite good. And uh, the bookstore sold plenty of copies. And uh, I walked in the door a little early and I saw a friend's mother who I hadn't seen in, in years. And she said, hi, do you remember me? And I said, of course I do. And I turned to my head and the woman standing next to her was just staring at me and smiling. And I said, are you my fourth grade teacher? And she said, yes. And she had seen the article in the newspaper. So my fourth grade teacher actually came to my book signing, which was amazing. That's awesome. That's awesome. So what are your writing inspirations? You said you read a lot. What were you kind of thinking about as you constructed these novels? Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Armistead Maupin and his whole Tales of the City series. And I loved how it was, in a way, a, a series of very short chapters that almost had a cliffhanger at every chapter that made you want to go on to the next chapter. And I think that had a big influence on me. Um, Additionally, I love the fact that he wrote this whole world of characters that felt very realistic, that had slightly quirky sides and, and had faults. And I, I love that about them, that they, they had these moments of insanity and craziness and crazy things happened to them. But this apartment complex full of straight and gay and trans, I, I loved it. So that was a, a huge influence on me. Um, I love Douglas Copeland. I love the whole Generation X and, and that sort of teen angst writing series. I love young adult literature like 
and John Green. I'm a huge beach read kind of person. I love these books that you can take to the beach and get lost in them for two days and then go back to your real world and your, your work and all of that. But uh, in writing these, I, I wanted to create something that was similar to that, that had this sort of sense of quirkiness and fun that wasn't necessarily just straight out gay romance. How would you describe your writing process? And actually, and with that, kind of did it change between the two books? It changed drastically. The, the interesting thing is that, as I, as I told you before, I really didn't intend to write a book. I just was seeing if I could write a book. So it wasn't the main goal. And so um, I'm a huge believer that the first line in a novel is the most important line. It really, really grabs you. And one of my favorite lines in the book is from uh, Less Than Zero, where the very first line is, people are afraid to merge on the freeways in Los Angeles. And I love how that sets up the whole feeling of LA and the traffic and the freeway and the tenseness. And I mean, you feel like you're in a video game when you're driving traffic in LA and I, I can't stand that. So I was actually waiting in line uh, at a club here in Stockholm well over two years ago, two and a half years ago. And this sentence popped into my head and it was, the four train is barreling down Lexington Avenue and I can see the reflection of my face in the glass of the subway door. I'm not pretty. And that ended up being the first line for my first book, Homes of Fire. And I wrote it down on my iPhone and it just sort of sat there for about a year. And then one day at work, I was having this particularly crappy day and I just wanted to close out the world. So I, I closed the office door and pulled out my iPhone and propped it up on my desk and I retyped that sentence and I just started writing organically. And the first three chapters wrote themselves fairly organically. It was at that point that someone, a friend of mine who's very smart and much smarter than I, said to me, no, you can't just write a book organically. It can't just grow. You need an idea of where you're going. So I, I realized that I needed to sort of pace out the book and what happens next. Um, so then I, I paced out all of the chapter titles and what happens under each chapter. I, I put little sort of, I thought of them as Twitter moments, you know, in 140 characters or less, what happens in each of these chapters. And I knew what, where the beginning of the book was and how it was going to have a, you know, a moment that caused friction, and then I knew what the end result was going to be, but not exactly how it was going to be resolved. So in a way, the whole first book still ended up being a little more organic because I didn't edit properly. I didn't know that I should edit as I go along. I tried to edit all at the end, and by the time you're at the end, you don't really know what you've written at the beginning. So it was a lot of learning in the first book. When I started to write the second book, it was much more strategic and laid out. I had my chapters laid out fully in advance. I knew my chapter titles. I knew I had a list of all my character names, who they were, how they were related to each other. And now I've fallen into this really nice rhythm where I edit in the mornings for about an hour and I edit whatever I wrote the day before and then I'll start writing new material and I won't edit it till the next day so it can sort of sit and digest a little bit before I get to it again. Interesting. You really went from being a pantser to a plotter almost without knowing about knowing it, it really sounds like. 
completely. I, I have, you know, that's sort of what I was afraid of. If you would ask questions in this podcast that I would have no idea how to answer because I'm making it up as I go along. I think that's what part of what makes your story so interesting, though, because there are always people who are like, I don't know how to start. I don't know where to begin. But I think it's also a matter of you don't really have to know. Sit down and write, and you'll just kind of figure it out as you go. And as you need to know stuff, you'll either ask other authors, because I, th I find the author community to be very giving about you know, offering up advice, or you'll go listen to a writing podcast or pick up a book or go to a webinar, or, you know, whatever it takes to get you where you need to be. Absolutely. And I think uh, one of the greatest helps was a, a friend of mine. I went to his wedding last summer and his mother, Cynthia Toddy, she's a, an author. And I said, you know, I'm thinking of writing. And she said, well, put something together and just send me a, your first chapter and I'll take a look at it. And she was very giving in her feedback and helped me sort of come to the realization that I needed a little bit more structure and I needed to flesh things out a bit more with characters. And, and as you said, other writers have been extremely helpful and extremely giving in their time. I'm so much so that I'm amazed how helpful people have been. Um, when I finished the first book and I hadn't really edited it fully, I also you know, put a message on Facebook to all of my friends and said, hey, does anyone want to read my book in advance and, and help me with some editing? And I didn't realize at the time that I should have been very specific about what kind of editing. So I learned that afterwards. I learned that I should have said, you take a look at typos and you take a look at grammar and sentence structure and you take a look at character development and story development and you just take a look at the overall sense of Am I making a fool of myself? Is this good? Is this bad? And so I ended up with a, a bunch of comments that basically said, oh, we love it. And that's all I got back. It wasn't really helpful. So on the second book, it, it, it helped me to realize that you, you can take advantage of your friend's help mm -hmm. in, in editing, which was truly wonderful. Yeah. So this question kind of really came up from my husband because I didn't actually notice this when I was reading the books because it's not something I tend to pay attention to as long as the story is working. Right. In the first book you wrote present tense and in the second book it flipped over to past. Yeah. And I was wondering if that was deliberate or if it just felt right organically or kind of what the thought was of moving from book one to book two and kind of changing up how the, what, the, what the point of view was. Yeah, in the first book, those first three chapters, they, they actually feel a lot different from the rest of the first book, and that's because they were written at such a different time. And the beginning of that first book is very present tense. It's very much about uh, how the main character, Derek, has been living in New York for, for 12 years, and he's fed up with his life. He wants a change. And I, in some ways, of course, it's it's a little bit of my own story, but I think that I I took a lot of it very first person present to heart that I wanted to really portray that this was happening to him right now. And then I got into a lot of grammatic traps that I didn't realize I had set for myself by writing a first person story, which I realized probably... I don't know if it's difficult or smart or stupid, and, and that would be an interesting question for other writers. Uh, you know, do they find that writing first person or, or third person is easier? But somehow my first person switched 
from present to past, and I just stuck with it because it was much easier to stay with things that had happened because then I could tell stories about things that had happened rather than having to have that character be present every time something happened. Mm -hmm. So I, I had these strange grammar issues. Um, in the second book, I started to realize that he didn't have to be present in every situation, even though I was writing first person. People could tell him stories secondhand. So I, I learned a little few more tricks in the second book, but, but I would definitely say that the, the immaturity of my writing is definitely there in the first book and, and those mistakes. I don't know, now I find them endearing, but uh, it's kind of like in the digital world, if you have an app, you put it out and you make mistakes, but you just do it and then you try and fix it later. Yeah, and I, like I said, it didn't bother me. I didn't even really notice it because the story had me moving along right. at, such a, at such a good pace and I was enjoying it that I didn't even catch it. Right. And, and, and my husband found it because he is not a fan of first person present. <laughs> He's yeah. not really a fan of first person, although I tend to write in first person a lot, although first person passed. It's, it's difficult. And I also had a lot of people comment on, on verb tenses, but uh, I can make a lot of excuses about Southern grammar. There's a lot of poor grammar in the South, and I think that I tried to make a distinct voice for many of the characters, and some of that includes double negatives or ain't or y'all and all of these yeah. things that I felt added to the character of the book. But I've had um, actually a fan in Germany wrote and she said, you know, I love this book, but your grammar is driving me crazy. But for me, it was part of the character. Yeah, it fell right into Southern for me because I spent, I was, I lived in Alabama from fifth grade through after college. Wow. So all of that, you know, just, it worked for me because I, I'd heard so much of that through my life. Exactly. Um, what would you say your biggest surprise was through your process of, of getting these books out and working your way through the publishing world? I think that I thought, the, well, this may sound terrible, but I think I thought that the writing would be the hardest part. But for me, the writing was the easiest part. Um, Writing came very quickly, very easily to me. Uh, the writers that I, I showed my work to, that I was showing them first drafts, they were saying, you know, we hate you, these can't be first drafts. You know, your, your story is too good and it's going too quickly and you've made character development and you're giving us surprises and cliffhangers and they said, you're doing everything right. How do you know this without having been taught that? So the surprise to me came after all of that hard work the editing and then the marketing is immensely more difficult to me than the writing. And I think that was the biggest surprise. I also thought very, very naively, which is funny, that you know all 1,400 of my Facebook fans or friends, who are really friends, I know them all, I thought they'd all buy the book the first day. And I thought they'd all rush out and buy it and jump on Amazon and I'd sell 1,000 copies within a week. And that was, of course, a big surprise that it's it's difficult to get the word out but not only that it's difficult for people to follow up and actually purchase your book and take that step to spend money either on your paperback or your kindle and uh, there are a lot of missteps along the way but uh, i learned a lot and i'm still learning so i'm grateful for that mm -hmm. it's it's an ever ongoing 
learning process because once you think you know it anyway, the the process changes or Amazon changes something or a new avenue for promotion comes up or goes away or. Absolutely. I mean, I, I was uh, suddenly getting five, six, 10, 15 downloads a day on Kindle and I couldn't figure out why. And I realized I'd been placed on a top rated list on Kindle. But as soon as I took my book off Kindle Unlimited, they remove you from all of their sort of internal lists and then all of those reads went away. So it's, it's very strange, all these learning processes. So do you have advice for other authors who are preparing to make a debut? In making a debut or in writing? I'll go both. Okay, in writing, I would say everyone should try it. It's absolutely about treating it like a job. It's about carving out two hours a day and saying, I will sit in front of this computer or this notepad for two hours a day. And if I write 50 words, great. If I write 5,000, incredible. But you have to treat it in a very structured way. And that, I don't think it was so surprising for me because I'm, I'm very creative yet very organized and structured as well. Um, the other advice in terms of marketing was you can't expect people to just simply <laughs> fall over and say, yes, of course, we love your book, we'll talk about it. You know, it doesn't matter how many friends you have, how many contacts you have. I have friends who work for publishing companies, friends who are editors for magazines, friends who work in fashion and media across all sorts of spectrums. And you know, very few of your friends are willing to call in that favor to actually help you out. You really have to do this on your own. And that means doing the research and finding different avenues that you wouldn't consider. I mean, this is part of the reason why I reached out to you. I, a friend of mine said, hey, if you're not having luck with Twitter or with uh, you know, uh, media, then try a podcast. And so I, I went to the podcast and I looked for fiction and literature and sort of tried to narrow it down to gay, which is kind of harder on, on iTunes to find this. And that's how I found you. So. Um, a lot of it was cold calling, and it's, it's been surprising. I, I sent an email to the advocate of, of all places, but I wrote to uh, Neil Broverman, who's the editor of The Advocate, and I said, hi, here's my story. I used to be the head of digital for H&M. I wrote uh, a book called Home is a Fire. It's a debut gay uh, fiction novel. Would you like to have an exclusive excerpt of the first chapter? And, and he actually did. So take some risks in writing cold calls, cold mails, cold Twitters, I can't tell you how many times I've, you know, stuck Andy Cohen or Ellen DeGeneres on my Twitter feed or RuPaul, but I just think that one day it will work because other things have, so something must. Mm -hmm. I mean, you hit that right. You, you hit two things that I think will resonate with a lot of people. It never hurts to ask. And if you don't ask, you're not, they're not going to say yes or no because they don't know about you. Absolutely. And the other thing is, you know, treating it like a job. You know, I, I pivoted my own writing from being, yeah, I'm a writer over here on the side to at the top of 2014, no, sorry, 2015. It's like, this is going to be a business now. And while I do have this day job, now I have this secondary job to produce fiction. And it changed my mindset and it changed a lot of stuff, you know, how my head worked and it's really helped drive me forward. So 
I think those those two things are awesome. Advice. The other great advice for me was was learning just for myself when to edit and when to write. So I, I separated the two of them. So as I said, I edit in the morning and then I write in the afternoon fresh so that I'm editing every single day what I wrote the day before. Because I found that if you if you wait too long, it's you know, it's like doing the dishes. If you let them stack up, you don't want to do them. So it's just the next morning I edit what I wrote the day before. It's, as I said, sometimes it's 50 words and some days it's two or 3,000. And that has helped me immensely because now I'm at the point where I'm, I'm about uh, 28,000 words into my third book. And uh, the whole you know, path trajectory of the book is planned. And it's so heavily edited now. I've gotten to be such a pro at this that I feel like by the time I'm done with what will officially be known as the first draft, I'll, I'll almost be done, which is great because then I can get some great feedback from my friends who are helping edit. Mm-hmm. So what is coming up for you this year? You say you're you know, 28,000 words into this book. Uh, what do we have to look forward to this year? I would like to finish this third book. Um, I got a little bit derailed with all of the marketing and, and working for first book and second book, One Was a Fire and the Fire Went Wild. So the third book will take me some time to finish. So I'd like to get that out there, hopefully by the end of the summer. And then I have to decide what I'm doing with these characters. I have a, another series in my head that um, I've been gestating. And, and you as a writer, you know this. I mean, you, you have these ideas in your head that they sort of find their way out in some way. And, and you take notes all the time. So I, um, I'm continually on my iPhone at parties writing down funny things that my friends are saying. And they all say, you know, it's not going to end up in your book. You know, maybe, maybe not. But I'm always taking down notes. So um, in this next year, I'd like to finish that third book, and I'd like to start on the new series. Is this third book another in the Home is a Fire series? It is. It will, it will finish it out, I believe. I believe. You know, it's, it's so funny. And do you find that as you're writing, the characters tend to take on a life of their own, and sometimes they do things that you didn't plan? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's amazing. I mean, there's this you know, massive reveal in my first book that wasn't planned at all and just sort of happened because the characters wrote themselves that way. And I loved it because it made me push myself to write the story into a new direction that I hadn't planned, and it opened up all these extra doors, which were amazing. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I try not to overplan a book mm-hmm. so that I leave myself open for that to happen. Smart or for when it inevitably happens, it means I don't have to, you know, rip a whole bunch of stuff out because I wasn't that, you know, finitely planned that I couldn't let it happen anyway. Exactly. I'm, I'm terrible about, I don't like to remove large sections, but sometimes you find that you've written yourself this chapter or this paragraph or this page that just simply doesn't work. And it's almost upsetting in a way, like you're killing a child, but you're, you're having to, take this back and, and push it somewhere else. But uh, parts of this other series that I'm, I'm considering writing, parts of that have already ended up in this Homes of Fire series. So I, this new series has really morphed into something that I didn't intend, but it's good because now it'll be really different from these books. Excellent. I look forward to that. Thank you. So... I prepped you in advance that you, you know, you were going to have to answer our question of the week for this episode. Yes. Uh, so what, 
what is your favorite romance trope? Uh, my favorite romance trope actually is uh, enemies to lovers. But my favorite part of that isn't the enemies or the lovers part, it's the frenemies right in the middle. Because I love that tension in the middle where they're still kind of enemies, but trying to figure out if they could be friends or could be lovers or could be more. And you as a reader, you don't know which direction that's going to go. And I love that, that moment of uncertainty. My least favorite trope, because I thought I'd throw that in too, is triangles. I hate love triangles because I don't want to choose between one person or another. I don't like that moment where it's too obvious that they should be with one person or shouldn't be with another person. So now it makes complete sense why Hell was a Fire is the way it is because you wrote to your favorite trope. Yeah, I wrote a lot about my favorite stuff in there. <laughs> a lot of my friends have recognized themselves, which is kind of funny. So what do you want to ask our listeners for the question this week? I actually thought about this this morning because, you know, I live in Sweden. I live in Stockholm. And in, in summer, we have about 22 hours of sunlight during the day in June, July, August. It can be up to 20 hours of sunlight which is crazy. And then in winter, you know, right now we have around 20 hours of darkness. So I think the sun went down at 2.30 this afternoon. So it is extremely dark here. Um, and I also tend to read a lot during summer when I'm at the beach, but I tend to not read very much in winter. So my question for your viewers is, how do the seasons affect your reading? The amount of reading that you're doing and the kinds of books that you're reading. Interesting. I don't even know how to answer that right off. <laughs> I'm kind of glad I have some time to space out my thought on that before we do the wraparounds for this episode. <laughs> Perfect. Interesting. Okay, that's a good question. Thank you. Interesting to see what we get back. How did, Well, you said how it affects you. you re you're reading more in the summer. I do. Which is interesting because I would have thought it might have gone the other way because you'd be reading more while you're hibernating. I, I think the reason for that is, is again, because I'm living in Sweden. In, in Sweden, we tend to hibernate a lot in winter and, and go to the gym and we're not very social. But in summer, you know, you leave your apartment the moment you wake up and you don't come home till three in the morning because you have all of this sunlight. So in summer, I tend to not go to the gym. I'm at the beach a lot or I'm biking or running or I'm with my friends and going out and I I can't make myself work which means write for me so I write very little in the summer so in that time I'm always reading I'm devouring books I'll read a, a book or two I'll read you know two or three books in a week just to get through them really fast in winter I'm hibernating more and I want to work as hard as I can but when I'm writing, I can't read someone else's work because it really affects me. So when it's winter, I don't read very much at all. So then in spring and summer, I have to catch up on all the books I missed. I, I like that, yeah. Because I, I know what you mean about the difficulty of reading and writing. I'm trying to read more this year in general because uh, I didn't feel like I read quite enough last year. Right. Uh, anything else you want our listeners to know about you, your writing? Um, I just I just wanted to say that I'm really grateful for people who take a chance on unknown writers. 
I mean, there are so many of us out there and it's been really amazing getting to know so many people in this community and really uh, reaching out to others who are trying to do the same thing that I'm doing. And I think that finding these moments like meeting you, people who are taking a chance on, on someone new, I'm extremely grateful for that. So um, the advice to new writers is just as we said, try and get those doors open and just take a risk. And I'm, I'm glad you did. I'm glad you, you you stepped forward and said, hey, I'd like to talk. Because <laughs> not only, you know, we got a good interview here for our listeners, but I got to read two great books. Fantastic. I'm you know, so glad. Because I really, I really fell into them and enjoyed them. And I thought your Tales of the City kind of connection was very apt because there's a vibe of that kind of in there. Um, I think I even saw somebody reviewed that way on Amazon that it was, it felt very Tales of the City. I would, I would love to have a conversation with him one day. That's, that's my dream. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So what's the best way for uh, the listeners to keep up on your projects? I'm very easy to find Jordan Nasser. There aren't very many of us in the world. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Goodreads. Um, I'm always looking for new reviews on Amazon and Goodreads. So I'm so appreciative of those. Uh, I answer emails. I write back. I tweet back. So create that conversation, start that conversation, and I'll be glad to talk to you. Excellent. We'll link to all those sources uh, in our show notes for this episode. Thank you so much. So Jordan, thank you so much for joining us and look forward to seeing what's coming out later this year. I had a great time and I look forward to hearing your future podcasts. That was a great interview with Jordan. Mm -hmm. I'm really glad that you had a chance to sit down and talk to him. Um, I didn't take part in the interview because when, when, uh, when you sat down and talked to him, I hadn't read those books yet. I am happy to say that I finished the second book last night, uh, and I loved them. I loved them, loved them both. Um, you compared them to, um, what was it? As a combination of Steel Magnolias and Tales of the City. Yes, yes, and I think that is uh, perfect, a perfect description, and I loved both books a whole bunch. I cannot recommend them enough. Yeah. Looking Love forward to the third. Yes. Yeah. Right faster, wait. Jordan. Yeah, please do. I can't wait. So we're excited that Jordan is offering up to our listeners signed paperback copies. Uh, you may have heard in the interview, he lives in Stockholm. He's willing to ship these paperbacks anywhere in the world they need to go. And the way that you can get in on the giveaway is to answer Jordan's question of the week. And now in the interview, he asked, how do the seasons affect your reading? the amount of reading that you do, and the kind of books that you're reading. Um, <clears throat> I actually had to go back to my reading list from last year to kind of figure out if I'm a seasonal reader. And normally I would say yes that I am. I would have, I would have guessed that I read a little bit less in the summer. But as I looked back at my 2015 list of things that I'd read, um, it didn't look like I had a season in particular. I only read one book in September, oddly for some reason, but uh, for the rest of the year, I, I averaged, you know, at least four, maybe five books every month. So there doesn't seem to be a season for me personally when it comes to the amount of books I read. Um, as to the kind of books I read, I don't think there's a season for that for me personally. I think, you know... That's just a, a spur of the moment thing. Like mm -hmm. when you when you finish a book and you set it down, uh, picking out 
what you're going to read next is just sort of like a uh, a spur of the moment. Yeah, thing. it's like, ooh, I'm going to read that. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's like, either whatever you bought last, <laughs> top of mind. Yeah, that's true. Or yeah. if your if your eye gla- you know whatever your eye falls on next, either in the in the Kindle cloud or on the bookshelf. Yeah. Uh, for me, I don't think currently that I have a season mm-hmm. to read. I think I just keep picking yeah, up. Yeah, you books. read all the time. Uh, yeah. I think I used to be more seasonal in New York because I would cycle to work. Mm-hmm. On my true. commute time, I would cycle when the weather was good, and so in the winter. I was on the subway more and would have that time to read. Yeah. And I think that was a seasonality, but I don't think it ever affected the kind of book I was reading. Because mm-hmm. much like you, it's like, finish that and like, ooh, I'll read that. Yeah. And off I go. Yeah. So you can leave your answer to this question on the show notes page for this episode at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. And remember, everybody who leaves an answer on the website will be registered to win the, paper, the signed paperbacks uh, from Jordan. Uh, those two awesome books. And remember, when you're answering the question, we'd also love to hear your suggestion for a question. Exactly. I was just, <laughs> I was just thinking um, how much I would love those paperbacks. <laughs> okay. I don't think we can enter. I, ugh, I know, I know. I'm not eligible. Um, so, yeah, please, you, if, okay, gosh, um, if you, if you have read them, you know how good they are, and the paperbacks would be awesome to have. Um, if you haven't read them, trust me, Trust Jeff. Trust us. They're really, really good. You're gonna you're gonna want these books, and the paperbacks would be awesome to have. Uh, so please, yeah, go to the website and answer this week's question, and tell us um, your seasonal preferences when it comes to reading. Yeah. So I think that should probably do it for this week. I think that'll do it. Yeah, absolutely. So remember, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, and YouTube. And we would love, love, love reviews on any of those channels. Uh, so leave us a star rating or you know, write us a little quip about the show and let us know what you think. Uh, you can leave comments on any of those places as well. As uh, Let me just bungle that bullet point. You can leave comments on any of those places as well as our website at BigGayFictionPodcast.com where you can also sign up for the monthly newsletter. Um, we'd love to get your emails and you can send those to, of course, Jeff and Will at... BigAfictionPodcast.com And that'll do it. So we'll see you back here next week. Stay warm, you guys, on the East Coast. See you next week, guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to Jeff and Will's Big Gay Fiction Podcast. For detailed show notes, go to BigGayFictionPodcast.com.